millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. When the United States left Vietnam in 1963, former National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger contrived to leave with honour. He calculated that the puppet government in Saigon would survive for a sufficient period of time for its fall not to negatively impact American public opinion and its international standard. A war-weary public could stomach an ignoble withdrawal, but not a defeat. Two years later, the distinction was lost on the world as the American-backed government fell and the United States was forced to evacuate from its embassy. The scenes of helicopters over Saigon were seared into the American consciousness. At the height of its power, the superpower paid the price for its hubristic ambitions. Parallels were hard to avoid when President Biden declared there would be no repeat of Saigon in Afghanistan. However, events took their course and Biden faced a humiliating withdrawal that cost the lives of 13 US soldiers and countless Afghans. A deep crisis now scars his presidency. The Afghan army melted away, the ill-fated Ashraf Ghani decided he would not be another DM, the South Vietnamese leader murdered by his own generals as the Viet Cong advanced. Biden had hoped that the treasures expended on Afghanistan, by some accounts nearly $2 trillion, would buy him some time. 
Ghani was meant to fight the good fight as US troops withdrew, yet his cowardice got the better of him. Without US air cover, he rightly calculated, the house of cards he had erected in Kabul, a plutocratic liberal mirage, would inevitably crumble. Maybe Biden had hoped for the government to last at least until the commemoration of 9-11, so he could tell his war-weary public that he had done the honourable thing. But scenes of chaos and death at Kabul airport underscored the strategic failure of his administration as they battled to keep up with events. Biden would later narrate that the botched operation was part of his military calculation, yet his words rang hollow. If there was ever a metaphor for a crumbling superpower, it was these final days. This week, I bring together two commentators and analysts to make sense of the regional and international dimension to the crisis. Sami Hamdi is the editor-in-chief of The International Interest. He is an experienced geopolitical analyst. He has been a television reporter and a talk show host for the last 10 years. Sami is a frequent guest on Al Jazeera, Sky News, TRT World and other news outlets. Ibrahim Moyes is a writer on South Asia with considerable insight into Afghanistan and Pakistan. He writes for TRT World and other outlets. I brought them together to consider the events of the past 20 years and what next for America and the Muslim world. Uh, the Taliban has, uh, is, in, is in the process of forming a government and uh, its victory against the United States can't be understated. And uh, it's pretty clear that the United States lost the conflict, regardless of how they're, they're trying to package uh, the, uh, the end of uh, this 20-year war. Uh, Brother Ibrahim, can you give us a, an idea, a brief history of the Taliban and who they are and what they believe in? So the Taliban are, you know, as their name suggests, they're originally a network of uh, students, uh, like Islamic students. From uh, th- their core is from southern Afghanistan, but you know they're 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 based in other parts of Afghanistan as well. And um, a lot of them were uh, basically politicized or militarized or whatever during the 1980s during the war against the Soviets. Uh, were quite a lot of them served, you know, sort of as foot soldiers. A few of them were commanders as well. Um, and basically, uh, when the war, uh, after the Soviets were driven out, most of them, you know, they, they tended to, you know, go, go back to their homes or, you know, go back to their studies or whatever. They weren't regular fighters. So uh, they basically, they they mobilized as a group, Taliban with a capital T, in uh, in the mid 1990s, um, and that was largely as a response to um, to you know sort of the pre- prevailing prevailing uh, chaos in in at least in southern Afghanistan at that time, um, and you know they captured a lot of Afghanistan uh, with relatively little fighting. Um, part of the reason was that you know they 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 often allied you know with one faction against another. Um, and also, you know, a lot of people defected to them as well. And then lastly, they got, they got a bit, quite a bit of support from Pakistan over the years, after, uh, not the initial period, but definitely afterwards. So these were all factors that helped them take over most of Afghanistan. Uh, they, they captured Kabul in 1996, but they weren't recognized by most countries as the government. Um, and then, you know, in 2001, they were basically, they were kicked out by the Americans and they began to mount an insurgency, uh, on and off insurgency, 
But, but get, by the mid-2000s, so, so it was, before you know, it was very much in full swing. They, they formed uh, a government which wasn't recognized in, in Kandahar in 1996. Uh, what was going on in Afghanistan um, that led to the emergence of the Taliban? After the Soviet withdrawal, um, there was a, there were a few there were a few years where basically the you know the both the quote unquote gov- uh, uh, communists and the quote unquote mujahideen they were basically uh, fighting each other for uh, you know uh, they they were fighting each other sort of in militias um, and it was a, it was a lot of factionalism basically both sides were very fragmented so you had certain communists who were allied with certain mujahideen against you know other coalitions of communists and mujahideen and after after kabul was taken basically after the, the government of najibullah was uh, uh, was overthrown in uh, 1992 this intensified uh, so so that a government that was you know normally led nominally led by the mujahideen it was it was basically it was forever uh, you know fighting at kabul and because of that you know the the rest of the country sort of fragmented you know there were sort of uh, localized fighting or you know localized fiefdoms of different commanders or different groups <clears throat> so the upshot was that that most of the country was sort of you know in a in an anarchic state uh, at the time that the taliban uh, were formed um and i think that that was also one of the reasons that they were uh, you know able to capture much of it very quickly uh because you know their enemies were not really united even afterwards when uh, the nor- sort of the northern militias uh, sort of formed a coalition against them. Even that was a very, you know, it was a very loose coalition, very, lots of backstabbing, lots of internal fighting going on there. So uh, basically the the fragmentation of the Afghan, uh, you know, political and military scene was such that uh, the Taliban were sort of, uh, in some areas they were actually welcomed uh, but in other areas, they were at least accepted as a, as a, you know, as an alternative. Right, and and um, we know from um, the period of the 1990s and early 2000s that the Taliban ruled um, uh, a, a fairly primitive state, and and you you know it's uh, it's clear that uh, the the war torn situation of Afghanistan accounts for the very limited resources the Taliban had in that period, but. We also know that the Taliban um, uh, has been described as, as adhering to a, a very austere f- form of Islam or a very, a very uh, a view about Islam, which is quite, I suppose that the term is restrictive. It, it has, uh, it's quite punitive and it, it uh, employs uh, quite heavily punishments as a way of, of, of keeping authority. I mean, Maybe that's just a you know a, a stereotype that uh, we've we've been led to to acquire. But what accounts for uh, the Taliban ideology, if we can call it that? So, uh, so the, the the Taliban they were not you know they, they were not a, a specifically like political group the way that you know that you can sort of say the Ikhwan al Muslimin or something or. Uh, they were basically students, mostly uh, Deobandi students uh, from the Deobanda, you know, uh, school of Hanafi thought. Um, and and they, 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 it, they, they, there has been sort of a a bit of propaganda about their actually a lot of propaganda about their you know their restrictiveness and things like that. But it's not you know it's it, it's based on considerable truth in in the fa- in the sense that they 
there was a lot of uh, it was very sort of narrow and uh, not um, it was very narrow and makeshift sort of you know interpretation or whatever you want to call it of Islamic law. Uh, it was it was you know it was um, it was definitely restrictive. Uh, they were they were not really that brutal compared to you know like earlier earlier you know groups. I don't want, I don't know how you want to put it, but they were very uh, uh, they were very uh, restrictive in the sense of you know they, they 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 tended to rule by the stick when where other things failed. Um, so for example, um, actually I had an Afghan friend who basically said that you know that they they sort of copy pasted like you know. Uh, uh, you know, the Obandi rules from like the 1800s or from the 1700s and then tried to apply it to, to you know, to Afghanistan in the year 2000. So obviously there's going to be problems. Um, it wasn't it wasn't as heavy handed as people say. I think it, it was more oppressive in sort of in the, or, you know, more oppressive and more unpopular in places like Kabul or, you know, sort of the big cities of Afghanistan where obviously, you know, these sorts of, uh, these sorts of basically rural, peasant mullahs were, you know, try, trying to enforce order in a very, you know, sort of punitive sense or in a, in a very narrow, narrow sense. Um, there were there were definitely exceptions to that, but, you know, as, as a rule, uh, they, they, they were very unpopular in places like Kabul and, you know, in places like Herat, which, you know, it's a very intellectual sort of city. Uh, so in, in these sorts of places, they were definitely unpopular. And that was that was sort of magnified internationally. Um, like you know, I've heard I've heard quite a lot of people you know compared to uh, Iran or Saudi Arabia, which you know they have they have sort of similar uses of you know punit punitive law or whatever you want to call it uh, versions of Islamic law, but uh, you know they, they have much better geopolitical uh, relations. Definitely Saudi Arabia does. So you you've taken us up to nine eleven and the Taliban are forced from power by. The American Sami, I wonder if you can uh, come in here. So the war on terror begins uh, after the uh, event in, uh, uh, in uh, the World Trade Center uh, and uh, the Pentagon and beyond. And, and you, you now have uh, a movement against the Taliban. Now, there's a lot to be said about the history um, of um, uh, American, uh, uh, the American mission in, in Afghanistan. But what were the original aims of America? What was it trying to achieve when it invaded Afghanistan? The original mission uh, of the US was twofold. The first was to satiate an American public that wanted to see blood, that was angry at the fact that the Twin Towers had been destroyed, angry that its fellow citizens had been killed in this attack by an enemy that is far off you know, from American soil. They were used to seeing wars on TV. They were not used to seeing uh, these things actually happen on their territory. And I think it was a sort of jolt to the system, a jolt to the American psyche, a jolt to the American public, so much so that no president of any uh, standing could have done anything but go to war. And I think that's something from the American perspective that's often underappreciated. This idea that after the Twin Towers, with that death toll, Bush could not go to the American people and say, I'm going to negotiate and discuss with the Taliban. Uh, and this is perhaps the counter argument to this idea of, you know, whether the Taliban, had they kicked out Al-Qaeda, whether that would, that would have uh, been enough. But that was the first aim, to satiate that public. It was a political decision, first and foremost, so much so that Donald Rumsfeld was so insistent on it that there was no room for rational debate. And this is why we saw the punishment of an entire region as opposed to specifically targeting Al-Qaeda or Osama bin Laden, who was being condemned 
by the Muslim world itself. So instead of just focusing on that, Rumsfeld made it into this big grand war on terror to justify not just going after bin Laden, but also to discipline countries in the region. Remember in 2001, before 9-11, King Abdullah had threatened to cut ties with the Americans over the video of Muhammad, of, of, uh, when the Palestinian with his son is hiding behind the box and the Palestinians and they go and kill him. If you look at the Washington Post articles or if you speak to uh, former Saudi advisors, Abd King Abdullah went into a madness and told the Americans that this is it, this is the crossroads. I will cut ties permanently. And Bandar bin Sultan, the then ambassador of Saudi in the US is on record as saying that King Abdullah scared even me. We in Saudi were convinced he was about to cut ties. And this tension persisted until August. So remember 9-11 is when everything changes, but until August, King Abdullah is threatening Bush so much so that he forces the Israelis to come up with this peace plan and accept it and offer it to Yasser Arafat. And Yasser Arafat famously goes to King Abdullah, kisses him on the head and tells him, but for you, we would never have been able to come out of this really intense blockade that we were under. But the reason I mention this is that 9-11 was also about, also about disciplining Saudi. And one of the tensions between Saudi and Qatar to sort of bring everything in is this leaked tape that was of a conversation between Hamad bin Jassim, the former Qatari prime minister, and Gaddafi, in which Hamad bin Jassim is on record. He doesn't deny that the conversation took place. He says it was taken out of context. But Hamad bin Jassim says to Gaddafi that Saudi is on the list of potential countries that are going to be invaded in a counter to, uh, to what bin Laden has done and what the Al-Qaeda has done to the US. So the first was about revenge, but the second was also about disciplining the region that was beginning to try to exert itself against the US and the neocons punished King Abdullah. He, there is a famous story that I heard once. Um, it was uh, from a, a gathering with Abdul Aziz Tuijri, Allah may Allah rest his soul. He is, uh, uh, he is the man considered the architect of King Abdullah's rise to become king. Apparently it was his idea to establish a national guard and then go and negotiate with King Fahad, but that's a different story. Abdul Aziz Tuijri, apparently the story goes that the journalist went to King Abdullah and said, what can we do in terms of the Palestine-Israel? What's your proposal? Because Saudi uh, proposed the Palestine-Israel deal. And King Abdullah said, write whatever you want. So in terms of the details, write what you wish. Uh, the attitude being, just get the Americans off my back, you know, after what uh, bin Laden has done in 9-11. But we hear uh, that uh, the Americans all, uh, also added another objective uh, to uh, to build a, a liberal democracy in Afghanistan, to uh, to change its political system and to, to create economic and social progress. Where did that come into the whole mix of, of the aims of America? Because it, it seems to me that this is really uh, where the Americans failed. This was a moving target, but it was impossible for the Americans to achieve this. I think um, while that might have been uh, one of the objectives, I don't think it was the main objective. And, and the reason being, I say that, is that the Americans, when you look at the way that they approach the Middle East or the way they approach uh, the regimes, it doesn't necessarily matter the ideology of the regime insofar as it matters in the way that they align to U.S. interests first and foremost. So if Iran is ready to come to a framework of cooperation with the US, then we'll see an Iran nuclear deal in which they'll agree to respect each other and there won't be much interest in whether Iran implements liberal democracy or human rights or, or, or that kind of thing. I do think, however, that when the Americans do go in, it's natural for them to embark on social engineering. It's natural for them to embark uh, on using aid to disassociate the Afghan population from their culture, from their religion, and to try to embrace the American society. I think there is a sense of American supremacy, this idea that they use the Hollywood films 
in order to create this image of America as this paradise, uh, so much so that when uh, a US plane lands in Kabul airport and says, I'll take anybody to the US in the spirit of rescuing them from the Taliban, it doesn't matter whether it's Taliban or whoever, you get on that plane and you go to the US. This idea that they created this idea, they tried to create Afghanistan uh, in their uh, image, and they spent much on social engineering, using aid to go to villages to say, look, this is the white American savior coming to feed you, to dig the well, to plant the trees, to build uh, your houses. This is the Americans who are doing good in terms of how uh, they are trying to implement themselves in Afghanistan. But ultimately, they failed because they disrespected or they underestimated the extent to which Afghans take pride in their culture and take pride in their religion. And I think uh, one of the things that the Americans did not learn from was that when you look at the Arab Spring, which was right there in 2011, so they had a good nine years to change their tactics. 2011, you've got Islamist parties or Islamic-leaning parties winning the elections. It's clear that all that secular rule of Bourguiba and Ben Ali in Tunisia did not change the affinity of the Tunisian people, even if you're seeing uh, beaches and less hijab and the like. In Egypt, for all the secularism and Adil Imam films and uh, all of these other uh, Hollywood films coming in, Egypt hasn't changed. Morsi uh, runs for an election. And even in an election in which Morsi and Abu Futuh are running together, still they manage to secure a majority. Still Morsi is able to win on a, on a two-round uh, election. So this idea that when the Americans went in, it wasn't so much that they wanted to build a, a state or a liberal democracy in and of themselves, but rather they did try to impose their values by force. They tried to alter their tactics later by using the hearts and minds. They tried to empower women in their own vision. They tried to dress women in their own vision. But the reality is that the manner in which the US entered, this invasion, this occupation, was a cloud that the Americans could not remove. And therefore, any measure that they took, be it positive or negative, irrespective, it was always seen as a conqueror imposing as opposed to a bottom-up uh, coaxing of a population to adopt your values. And that's why I think the Taliban were able to storm across Afghanistan and win uh, the required support. I won't say they won support, but they won enough level of support so as to maintain uh, those uh, military uh, gains. Uh, when, I, when, when we look now at the Americans, and, 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 and your question is a very poignant one, at the Americans celebrating women's rights and how they develop women's rights and the like, it's important to put this into reality, which is that the Americans are talking about implementing women's rights with, and forgetting that they propped up a corrupt government, a corrupt judiciary, a regime that was so bad and so corrupt that the Afghan army did not even feel it was worth defending, that the people did not believe it was worth defending. And this is why I think it's very hollow. And this is why I argue perhaps it wasn't the primary objective, because when you look at South Korea, and I'll finish on this point, when you look at South Korea, the Americans colonized it for 40 years. But in the 1990s, a, a liberal democracy did emerge, albeit uh, in, 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 a, in a sort of fusion between a Korean-American uh, shape. So if the Americans want to build a state, they can build a state, and South Korea is an example of it, albeit in a very limited terms. None of that happened in Afghanistan, uh, primarily because I don't think it was a key objective and I think the manner in which the U.S. went in meant anything they did was just an occupier imposing their values on a people who never wanted them there in the first place. Just touching on what Sami said, uh, he mentioned, you know, sort of this uh, punitive or this sort of, you know, American exceptionalism or supremacism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, so they definitely went in with that mindset. And a lot of it was sort of like I mentioned, there was there were definitely a lot of, you know, sort of exaggerations or misconceptions about the Taliban in Afghanistan. Um, you know, which is not to say that you know that, that, that they were that they weren't short of you know actual sins or whatever, 
but uh, a, a lot of it was, you know, very much exaggerated to, you know, to, to the end that, you know, you're saying that, you know, Taliban are, you know, executing women for, you know, stepping out of their homes, things like that, you know, it's, which is like, you know, it, was, it wasn't true then, it isn't true now. Um, it, it was basically just war propaganda that they sort of believed. Uh, basically, all the, all the stereotypes or whatever you want to call it of Islam that, that uh, you know, the sort of Islamophobes or whatever have fanned. They sort of, you know, they sort of dumped it on the Taliban. They made it, you know, they made it so that, you know, the Taliban are one thing, the Afghan society is another thing. And they believe their own hype to a very large extent. They believe their own hype. Uh, they believe their own propaganda. So when they went in, they had a whole bunch of different things uh, going on. Uh, like like you mentioned, um, they did want to, you know, they, they did sort of want to socially engineer or, you know, sort of uh, politically and socially both uh, mold Afghan society to the norms of the United States. Um, one of the ironies of this was that you know that a lot of the a lot of the commanders that that they aligned with, um, you know, so, so some of them were former communists, some of them were like you know former Islamists of the you know of the Ikhwani mold. So, for example, Ahmed Shah Massoud's network was you know they were basically uh, they were basically one branch of the Afghan. Uh, version of the Ikhwan al Muslimin. What what emerged because of the, these sorts of alliances was an an Afghan republic that was you know to, it was por- portrayed to the outside world as sort of you know uh, uh, America sort of liberating uh, Afghanistan from you know repressive Islam and whatever, and it was sh- uh, portrayed on the ground as you know the, the same government is trying to portray itself as you know ba- we're basically an Islamic republic. We are you know we are we are protecting the rights of Afghanistan. So they were never able to square that circle. And a lot of it was them believing their own propaganda. A lot of it was, uh, you know, their Afghan partners sort of, you know, telling them what they wanted to hear, uh, often for very short-term interests. Um, and and like like Sami mentioned, there was, you know, there's also this idea that we're going to change Afghan society to the norms of the West. And some of this was, it even predated the invasion of uh September, uh, October 2001. Um, you know, so for example, in February 2001, and even before that, there were, you know, there, there was a lot of talk on in the American media about, you know, the Taliban being an extremely repressive and essentially alien factor in Afghanistan, uh, which wasn't the case. You know, they, they, they had some influence from, you know, Deobandi, uh, from, you know, from Deobandi seminaries, but they were definitely a very much an Afghan faction. And there are a lot of even even politicians who who were in power after after the Americans took over. A lot of them had been part of the Taliban briefly before that. There was was a lot of switching sides. There were people who had fought the Taliban before who ended up joining them after two thousand one. So there, it was definitely very much part of Afghan society. Uh, the Americans by the time they understood that it was sort of too late to change their strategy. They did try to change their strategy in the sense of you know sort of winning hearts and minds but again this was more of a top-down thing you know it was a it was a it, it was again it was an attempt sort of to americanize afghanistan uh you know so a lot of the aid was tied into political into political program it was basically politi- politicizing things such as aid and development so that it would it would help serve the american mission in afghanistan the american mission in afghanistan itself was based on these sort of contradict uh contradicting ideas, you know, that on one hand, we are liberating Afghanistan from radical Islam or whatever you want to call it. On the other hand, they're allying with 
you know, basically a Muslim Afghan, uh, you know, Muslim Afghan allies. Um, and another thing was that they tended to ally with, um, with you know, with a lot of the worst sort of segments of Afghan society. So a lot of their allies were, you know, they were basically uh, known to be, like they were very openly known to be, you know, like uh, raping boys and things like that. And this wasn't a one-off case. This happened in quite a few places and happened for a number of years. So, so the the whole the whole contrast between PR and reality on the ground, uh, the the sort of the the contradictions of the American strategy itself. They were never quite sure if they were nation building or if they were you know there to punish Al Qaeda. Uh, all of that combined to make a very a very uh, you know incoherent strategy and a strategy that wasn't going to work. Sami, I, I want to pick up on that uh, point uh, that Ibrahim made about the incoherence of American policy uh, in Afghanistan. I mean, uh, Joe Biden admitted this in in the most recent speech to the American public that for probably ten years the Americans had realized that uh, the adventure in in Afghanistan was a uh, was was uh, full of folly. It, it was a, a failed mission. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, the uh, American presidents, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, until the very end, at least, uh, stuck with the course and, and remained in, in Afghanistan. What accounts for that failure? I mean, I, I was reading George Packer's biography of um, Richard Holbrook, who was the uh, American attache to uh, uh, to to, to uh, Afghanistan. And as far back as 2009, he was telling uh, uh, Hillary Clinton that uh, the, the mission was useless. The mission had failed and, and America had to find a way out of Afghanistan because it's not working. What accounts for that incoherence that, uh, you know, that the high level officials, generals on the field, um, diplomats were telling the American government that uh, things were not going well and, and there needs to be an exit plan. Yet it took them 10 years to leave uh, the country. I, I was once invited to a closed door uh, discussion. Um, it was organized by one of the major think tanks in, in Italy and the, the US Department of Defense and a few of the Gulf states, they participate. Don't ask how I was invited. Um, but um, there was a, a, one of the most senior uh, US generals based in the Middle East there, based in the, in the command center in Kuwait. And he was asked the question, at the time Trump was in power, this is 2018, and he was asked why America, if it knows by, even by his own assessment that it's a futile exercise, whether that's in Iraq, whether that's in Afghanistan, why do US troops stay there? And he responded quite remarkably, and he said, because of politics. And when they asked what he meant, he said, no US president is brave enough to take the political hit that will come as a result of withdrawing from Iraq or Afghanistan. The Democrats don't want the Republicans to do it, and the Republicans want the Democrats to do it, because neither party wants to be the one remembered for being in power at the time of America being humbled on the international stage, or on, uh, as we're seeing Biden uh, today, in the sense we're talking about the American forces being humbled and America in decline, and the you know, post-Pax Americana, and, and, and that kind of attitude. He said nobody wants to do it. And he actually said that's one of the good things that Trump uh, is doing in the sense that Trump, for all his disagreements, he's sitting down and he's saying, guys, we're not staying in Afghanistan. We're leaving. And he pulled the rug from under, you know, Ghani's government and said to him, listen, I don't care what you think. I'm making a deal with the Taliban uh, and I'm leaving. And I think uh, that's one of the interesting things. And even when we look back at the reign of Sheikh Burak Hussein Bu'amama, 
when he came to power in uh, in, in in Washington, um, and uh, he talked about withdrawing from Afghanistan, withdrawing from Iraq, and the like. Don't forget the Arab Spring took place in 2011. You know, three years into uh, his rule, and Mohammed bin Zayed is telling him that your lack of support for Hosni Mubarak uh, and and bin Ali is a sign for all of us that you Americans can no longer be trusted. And Obama is sort of caught between, well, what am I supposed to do? I've got the security interests here, but I've got people protesting and overthrowing the regimes. I'm seeing people I don't want win elections, but on the public, I'm telling people that we should be pro-democracy. I've got France telling me that what's happening in Tunisia uh, and Libya uh, is a disaster. I've got, uh, like, this isn't the time for me to withdraw from Afghanistan and Iraq at the time in which I need to assert power. And I think it's only when Donald Trump comes, the sort of outsider, the sort of anti, and I'm not praising Donald Trump. I believe he's one of the worst ever to come into Washington. But it's only when somebody with the, I don't know what's the right word for it. Is it the the complacency or, or, or the, the stubbornness or the contrarianism that's in Donald Trump? I don't want to say stupidity, uh, but it's only when somebody comes like Donald Trump who perhaps doesn't grasp the full concept of Pax Americana in the world, when he comes in and says, listen, oh, you guys want me to stay in Afghanistan? I'm leaving. You want me to stay in Iran? I'm leaving. You want me to make a deal with Iran? I'm going to apply maximum pressure. In other words, he goes against everything that his advisors uh, are telling him. And I think that's the simple answer. It was far too costly. Obama didn't want to go down in history as a man to withdraw Afghanistan. And I actually think, and it's a controversial opinion, because it's not that I am praising the occupier or the oppressor or the invader, but there is much to be said about Biden that he can stand in front of the American public and American cameras with a straight face and tell them, I'm getting out and I don't care what you think about it. The idea that he can sit on a podium and say, guys, how many more soldiers do you want me to send to Afghanistan to get killed? The way that he can stand in front of the American public and do what Obama was terrified to do, what Bush was terrified to do, what uh, Trump, I won't say he was terrified to do, but sort of it's unclear whether he would have seen it to the end. But he, he liked the idea, but of course the implementation might have been different. But that's something that, 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 that I think, contrary to people saying Biden is weak, I actually think Biden looks actually very strong in terms of how he's coming across, even if perhaps it does affect America's standing uh, in the world. So that's the simple answer. The political hit, Biden believes he can take it. And I actually think the Americans uh, don't care too much anymore about Afghanistan. The, the wave of uh, revenge, the wave of wanting blood is long gone. The Americans are no longer in a hysteria, whereas before it was like punish and, 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 and draw some blood and, and get revenge. Now it's more like, for God's sake, just every the world hates us, let's bring our troops home uh, and forget about it. But the, the only caveat I'll say, this is not to suggest Biden is different from his predecessors. And I think the glaring proof of this is that Biden punished the killing of 12 Marines by a drone strike that killed Afghan children. So the attitudes in many ways are the same. The only thing perhaps that is different is the American attitudes, i.e. revenge, and also the fact that Biden believes that there are far more greater priorities and he will not suffer the political hit in the manner Obama might have. I mean, do you think that uh, the change in American public opinion accounts for Donald Trump's um, you know, capitulation in 2018 when he began negotiations with uh, the Taliban and, and Biden's uh, complacency, I suppose, when he, uh, regardless of uh, the backlash in, in, in the American elite circles, in, in, you know, in, in the Washington bubble, 
uh, Biden is fairly confident, I suppose, that American public opinion is with him. Do you think that accounts a lot for uh, this this measure where whereas uh, Obama was was much more wary of um, uh, of uh, the, the discontent that may arise out of leaving Afghanistan? I think it's not necessary that Biden is less interested. More, I think Biden has there's a, Biden operates in an environment that was not afforded to Obama. Obama operated at a time in which he would have been hit badly and the Democrats would have been hit badly if he had withdrawn from Iraq and Afghanistan and the Taliban had come back to power and then the Arab Spring would have taken place two, three years later. You know, there would have been Ikhwan in Egypt and Ikhwan in Tunisia and then uh, it would have been chaos. America would have been all over the place. So I think with regards to Biden, it's not necessarily that the American American public opinion has changed, but uh, but not in a manner in which they're suddenly against Afghanistan, more that it's no longer a priority and Biden can afford to take uh, that political hit. But on your point about Trump capitulation, I don't think Trump sees it as capitulation. Trump, uh, which is actually quite interesting in that a lot of Arab dads, uh, I don't mean it in a derogatory term, I mean the older generation, when they see Trump's interviews or when you see their Facebook and they're sharing Trump interviews of why did we go into Kuwait? Why did we go into Iraq? Why did we go into Afghanistan? It was stupid. We didn't, everybody shares it. They see Trump as this, you know, anti-American. They almost see Trump as if, you know, he is the enemy of America who came and they start. So uh, why do you say, you know, Trump capitulated? You know, there is this idea that Trump is not American for him to capitulate. You know, Trump was this sort of, you know, Allah sent him specifically to you know, do what the Americans didn't want to do, if that makes sense. It, it does. And Ibrahim, I want to bring you in here. And can you can you shed some light on how America fought this conflict and and why the tactics they employed created uh, that anti-Americanism, that 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 anti-American feeling that uh, uh, exacerbated the, the support for the Taliban? So when they originally ousted the Taliban, it took them, you know, it, it took them a month or two. To, to get them out and what they basically did was they sort of bombarded them into into surrendering you know the Taliban didn't have a sophisticated air defense or whatever uh, the the problem after that was that you know in in their hunt for al-qaeda uh, you know which was driven to a large extent by the sort of irrational feeling of you know revenge and sort of you know stamping ourselves in the world making an example uh, in in that hunt for Al Qaeda, they they basically you know they employed such a big dragnet, they made it basically impossible for the government of Hamid Karzai, which was a, uh, which was not unwilling to negotiate with the Taliban, but it, they basically made it impossible for them to, you know, sort of reach any sort of negotiations with the Taliban or to reach any sort of uh, rapprochement with the Taliban. And the the ironic thing is that in the winter of two thousand and one to two thousand two, both Hamid Karzai and even uh, even Musharraf in Pakistan, they were both uh, they were both very much in favor of uh, of you know basically giving amnesty or whatever to the Taliban in order that uh, you know the, the new government could sort of stabilize. Uh, so so Karzai had at least two or three uh, attempts at making deals. Uh, one was with you know the central Taliban leadership in uh, in Kandahar who. Basically, they were the ones who approached him and, and they asked him, you know, can you uh, give us an amnesty and we'll just, you know, we'll just go back home, we'll retire, whatever. Uh, and then there was other, you know, with sort of like seasoned sort of militant leaders such as Jalaluddin Haqqani, people like that. 
sort of further east who, um, you know, th- they had friendly links with Al-Qaeda, but they were very much, you know, pr- pragmatic local politician first and foremost. And somebody like Jalaluddin Haqqani, I've even, you know, written articles about this, but, uh, you know, in, his entire modus operandi was that he kind of made deals with everyone. Uh, he was sort of like a mediator. So even he, after the Taliban government fell, he was he was willing to make a deal with uh, Karzai, who even offered his brother that he, he could make him a governor. But this was basically shot down by the United States. Rumsfeld basically, you know, he he wanted to, you know, sort of punish everyone. Uh, they had this whole idea of, you know, of a manhunt and they made such a big dragnet. They, they not only involved Al-Qaeda people who they tried to capture or kill, uh, it involved basically Taliban, you know, even Taliban foot soldiers, Taliban commanders, whatever. It involved other foreign fighters. There were a lot of, you know, non-Al-Qaeda Arab foreign fighters. Uh, it even involved civilians. And, you know, there's there's very famous cases of people in Guantanamo and uh, who, were, who were basically, you know, they were sort of swept up, uh, sold there for bounty or whatever. So because of, because of uh, these sorts of things, it became impossible at that time to reach and and agreement that would enable the Taliban to surrender peacefully. So of course they fought as a result of that. And the United States, they were, they were, you know, there's sort of this myth that the United States were, uh, they didn't pay enough attention to Afghanistan because they were distracted by Iraq. Uh, you know, they definitely paid a lot of, you know, they paid much more attention to Iraq, but they never really took their eye off Afghanistan. They were, you know, there were raids, there were, there were, you know, missions by, you know, commandos and things like that in the countryside. Uh, this is how the war was prosecuted until basically the late 2000s. The late 2000s, when the Taliban started making a comeback, uh, the United States, you know, they, them and NATO and, you know, their allies, Canada, Britain, whatever, Germany, they, they started trying to implement the Iraqi strategy, which was, which was, you know, sort of like a nation building strategy. Basically, you go in, you, you, you have enough soldiers that you keep, you know, the enemy away. And you try to build the, you know, conquered territory on your own, on your own terms. Uh, the problem with this was obviously that firstly the Americans couldn't stay there forever. Uh, secondly, the Americans were not, you know, obviously not being from Afghanistan, they, they had very little local knowledge. They were, you know, they were often fleeced by warlords or even by, you know, sort of scam artists, conmen, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the third thing was that that even this strategy which had been tried in Iraq it was sort of a band-aid strategy it wasn't it, it wasn't actual nation building it was more of a pol- uh, political PR sort of thing uh, so you know you had you had basically warlords you had criminals you had these sorts of people who were often uh, whitewashed as being you know as, as being you know uh, uh, what do you call it developers and and uh, so al- almost like uh, almost like they were philanthropists when they were basically, you know, one side of a war. Um, after after t- the early 2000s, which was basically this period of the surge, the United States, they focused increasingly on, you know, basically their, their counterterrorism uh, strategy that has since been employed, which is, you know, drone strikes, uh, airstrikes, things like that. Uh, they did kill quite a few senior, you know, Taliban and even Al-Qaeda people, but... But, you know, it was sort of like a whack-a-mole sort of thing. You know, you kill one, another comes up. Um, the Taliban was not such a centralized sort of organization that, that you know, removing one or two leaders is going, to, is going to make them collapse. They were very much ingrained in Afghan society. 
and there were you know there were a lot of afghan groups like i mentioned who would often help the taliban against their other rivals but the united states has basically been uh, applying this strategy they've been trying to uh, sort of afghanize their mission which of course the soviets also tried to do by making you know an afghan army but the afghan army was very very dependent always on american airstrikes um and you know there's the militias that were supposed supposedly the contrast to the afghan army um you know they they had a they had a sort of rivalry with the army and actually that's what we saw this summer um uh in some areas the army just melted away in other areas the militias melted away but they were more nervous about each other than they were about the taliban and there was very little coordination and then finally there's one more point that i'd like to bring up which was that you know for at least 10 years the war has been privatized a lot so there's been a lot more you know contractors or mercenaries or whatever you want to call it you know eric prince's people people like that that have been uh, involved in afghanistan as opposed to american soldiers and one of the reasons for this obviously because you know american soldiers getting killed makes it harder for the government to justify the war uh, you don't have that with, with professional mercenaries the other thing is that it's obviously good for business there's a lot of people such as eric prince who are, you know they they make a lot of money out of this uh, and the third thing is it 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 sort of uh, it sort of enables you to use you know tactics that would be considered beyond the pale if they got if and you know if your official army did it so a lot of these mercenaries in afghanistan they were sort of you know kind of notorious they were basically like warlords except foreign warlords so uh, th- these these are the different ways that the united states they they you know they basically went from long distance bombardment through to the surge through to long distance bombardment and mercenaries and none of these tactics really or none of these strategies really worked because their overall rationale for being in afghanistan it was never coherent so the politics never matched up to the military planning right and i think that's a really good explanation and and you mentioned earlier the role of pakistan uh in uh in aiding the taliban um what is what is the role of pakistan i mean many commentators uh talk about pakistan's dual role uh you know or two faces when it comes to the conflict on on the one side pakistan supported the american mission the nato mission with supply lines and and um territory as as a way of uh uh prosecuting the conflict but um uh, commentators also discuss uh, that uh, the ISI had nurtured elements of the Taliban and had very close connections with the Haqqani network and, and other elements of of the Taliban and ultimately when uh, the the Qatar agreement uh, was was brokered um the the news goes that Pakistan was quite instrumental in bringing the Taliban to the negotiating table so how do you describe the the complex a uh, relationship i suppose of pakistan with the taliban and with america so um i'll just quickly just add some background history to this just because it ties into this <clears throat> so in the 1980s pakistan was the main uh, you know foreign state through which aid to the mujahideen against the soviets uh, was uh, distributed aid weapons things like that so they were in alliance with the united states but because the war was so important to american interests the united states sort of generally let pakistan get uh, you know uh, do their thing uh, you know the pakistani government of that time was very uh, was kind of guard, guarded its its privacy its its links with the afghans very jealously um and of the rationale in that war was you know it was sort of similar to this one in the sense that there was a a, a foreign sort of 
behemoth that went into Afghanistan um, and had the po- potential to hurt Pakistan. The the difference was that in the you know in the 1980s Pakistan was allied with the United States in fighting such an invasion. In the 2000s it was the opposite. They were they were aligned with the United States in the invasion. But this alliance was sort of forced upon them. It's important to remember that <clears throat> even Musharraf and uh, even the Pakistani governments before him, they had they had links to varying uh, Afghan parties, including some of the Taliban's enemies. But by the end of the 1990s, they were definitely very close to the Taliban. And even Musharraf, the first thing he did when after 9-11, uh, after the attacks, was that he tried to move Pakistan's, you know, relatively new nuclear assets because he was afraid that this was a sort of a pretext for the United States to, uh, you know, to, sort of to spread the war into Pakistan and maybe maybe strip them of their assets, uh, especially the nuclear assets. So the nuclear thing sort of, it became a sort of form of leverage uh, for Musharraf. But he was basically, he was forced to support the United States because all the other countries in the region had already been on the opposite side, the side against the Taliban. Uh, for a number of years, so Russia, India, Iran, a uh, number of Central Asian countries had all uh, had all been supporting the Taliban's enemies. And you know, when 9/11 happened, it left it left not only the Taliban but also Pakistan exposed because Pakistan had been backing the Taliban who had been hosting Al Qaeda, even though the Pakistan had been trying to wedge between the Taliban and Al Qaeda, but they hadn't really been successful in that for a number of reasons. But <clears throat> What this forced uh, Musharraf and subsequent Pakistani governments to do was sort of to ap- apply a, du- a dual sort of uh, policy. Uh, they kept the Taliban almost like insurance. Like, you know, they let them escape there. There was a lot of public support in Pakistan for the Taliban. Uh, you know, not just the military, but even among a lot of, among of a lot of even rival political parties, things like that. Um, especially in, like in the northwest of the country at that time. Um, there were a lot of sort of Islamic parties that were supporting the Taliban, uh, you know, basically under the table. And the government sort of, you know, they sort of looked the other way when this happened. Uh, so while Pakistan was doing this, they were also they were also against Al-Qaeda. And their, their policy from the start, which the United States sort of rejected, was to focus on Al-Qaeda and, you know, basically leave the Taliban be. Um, like I mentioned, uh, you know, they were... This was a policy that was even shared by Karzai at the time. Uh, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to make the Taliban into his enemies when he could have avoided it. But either way, uh, Pakistan since that period has been, uh, if not actively helping, at least tolerating the Taliban. Uh, it's been exaggerated quite a lot, you know, uh, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, for example, the United States sort of needed a scapegoat, so they blamed Pakistan. There was a lot of frustration. Definitely Pakistan tolerated them being on its territory. Uh, they they did extradite or they, they did turn over a few Taliban officials at the start. Uh, Mullah Abdul Salam Zaif, who was ambassador, that's a very you know famous case, notorious case, where they basically turned him over to Guantanamo. But um, generally, after that, they, they sort of, you know, looked the other way. In some cases, parts of the Taliban, uh, sorry, parts of the Pakistani government or uh, political parties or military um, help the Taliban as far as, as, you know, logistics and things like that were concerned. So, you know, I, I, I personally know of a few, you know, very high-ranked officers who were, who were, you know, basically supporting the Taliban under the table, almost in their private capacity. So <clears throat> it, was, it, was, it was sort of a dual, it was sort of a dual approach in the sense that they were playing both sides off each other. But 
at the same time, it was it was sort of vindicated in the sense that Pakistan's original policy, which was to oppose Al Qaeda and to help the Taliban, that has sort of been you know that that's sort of the policy towards which the United States has moved since then. And then the the last thing I want to mention just quickly is the regional factor, which is that you know after the Soviet Union collapsed, basically Central Asia was up for grabs by you know by its by the surrounding countries, including Pakistan, including India, including, you know, China, Russia, whatever. So, in fact, one of the reasons that pa Pakistan helped the Taliban was uh, in the 1990s was because they had enough stability for Pakistani, you know, merchants and traders to basically go through Afghanistan. The, the previous Afghan factions and governments were not able to do that. Uh, basically, what, what happened in 9-11 was that the Pakistani side of this was basically sort of vilified, turned into the into pariah. So the United States basically supported all the rivals of Pakistan. So that that was another sort of incentive for Pakistan to, to sort of double deal with the United States. So what the United States basically did was they replaced Russia as the major power in the region. And this was also a factor that was in the minds of a lot of American policymakers, you know, sort of sort of exploit 9-11 to the end, to, to the effect that America becomes the new kingmaker in the region, uh, which is obviously a very strategic region. Um, and, you know, uh, India, which is Pakistan's, you know, major art rival, was also very influential sort of in egging the United States on uh, to stay in Afghanistan. And, you know, even now, if you if, if you look at um, the reaction to the American defeat, I think, I think the Indian government is probably the most, the most dismayed at how things have gone, um, probably even more than, than the American government itself. Uh, because they sort of assumed that the Americans would be there forever. So, you know, they, they almost it's, it was like betting on the wrong horse. And of course, they, India also wanted the United States to expand this in, uh, this anti-terrorism war into Pakistan. Uh, so they used to, you know, cite the links between, uh, you know, the Pakistan uh, military or government and between the Taliban. Uh, they used to sort of play it up. And uh, they, they were basically very active in sort of creating this sort of political atmosphere where the war in Afghanistan was seen as, you know, between good and evil, with, you know, evil being, you know, radical jihadi Islamic terrorists or whatever. Um, and obviously, in Afghanistan, the actual picture was much more complicated. But anyway, these are all the factors that sort of meant that Pakistan, even if they had wanted to, which I don't think they had, but uh, they, never, they never abandoned the Taliban to the extent of, you know, rooting them out the way that the Americans had, would have preferred that they did. And that basically gave the Taliban a fallback area uh, from where to operate, uh, basically in, in western Pakistan, Balochistan and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Samia, it's fair to say that there is a, uh, a, a context here which goes beyond the region. And that context is um, America's growing uh, concern with China, concern about the rise of China. I mean, Donald Trump uh, talked about uh, the heedless, uh, you know, the the failure of American strategy in focusing on uh, the Muslim world in the Middle East when it should have been focusing on a great power rival China. Joe Biden, you know, in, in all of his speeches, uh, makes reference to uh, greater challenges America faces. Why are we squandering our wealth and our money and our, our people in, in Afghanistan when we've got bigger fish to fry? Um, do you buy that argument that uh, one of the reasons behind the withdrawal was was uh, America's refocus, it, its need to 
to to think about uh, the rise of China and to counter and to contain China. And and, and I suppose the next question is, um, uh, how does China view what is happening in, in Afghanistan and and you know the potential relationship it may have or may not have with the uh, the new Afghan Taliban government? I think that's a tricky question. I think first and foremost, because if we're looking at it from the China angle, the reality is that Afghanistan is an essential geostrategic uh, country when it comes to pushing back against China. So if you're looking at Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, within the context of pushing back against China, then it doesn't really make that much sense, given that now you've just handed Afghanistan over uh, to the Chinese and there are all these statements uh, that are being attributed to the Taliban, this idea that uh, um, th- th- they have agreements now that China is going to rebuild Afghanistan, China is going to come in and give us the support that we need, and China is going to come in and, and help us on the international stage. So in many ways, if you're looking at it through the China angle, Biden has just handed over Afghanistan uh, to the uh, Chinese. So I don't think it's uh, entirely driven by that uh, particular uh, framework. Uh, I think, uh, moreover, when you've withdrawn from Afghanistan in a manner that affects India, which is one of your prime partners, uh, in a way that vindicates Pakistan, and you're not taking steps to repair your ties with Pakistan, which has the ch- attempts to be a potential game changer, but instead you're trying to back Turkey to get involved in Afghanistan in a bit to sort of drive a wedge between Turkey and uh, Pakistan or between Turkey and the, and the Taliban, for example, which uh, it, it bewilders me how Erdogan is going down that particular path, but that's a different issue uh, altogether. The context of China doesn't entirely explain what is happening with regards to Afghanistan. It's true that there is a pivot to China. There is a map that's doing the rounds on social media about the extent to which over the past 20 years, how global trade has moved towards China. And there's this map now where it shows, I think in the 1980 majority of countries, US was the top trading partner. In 2021, China now is the top trading partner for most of the uh, uh, countries uh, around the world. So I think there is much uh, with regards to this extent, and perhaps Biden might have thought that there needs to be a different approach, a more diplomatic approach where they're dealing with Afghanistan. The one argument I would make that might fit with with, with the China dynamic with regards to Afghanistan is perhaps this belief that the Americans believe they can actually develop a relationship with the Taliban, that if the Taliban have to choose between China and the US, they would still be more amenable Uh, to the U.S., that the U.S. is still the only country that can give the international recognition to the Taliban that the Taliban so badly want. And the reality is that, let's be honest, even Pakistan is not uh, recognizing the Taliban or giving it that international recognition until it sees it can do so without incurring consequences from Washington. Qatar, which is the party that mediated and that is talking to the Taliban, refuses to acknowledge the Taliban openly or give it international recognition until Biden is willing to do so. Turkey, likewise, uh, is in the same position as are Europe. In other words, it's absolutely clear that while the U.S. have been defeated in Afghanistan, while they've withdrawn from Afghanistan, U.S. still has options. Biden still has options in terms of how he can approach Afghanistan. And I actually think Erdogan, in his bid for the airport, has actually exposed two fundamental concerns within the Taliban. And, and, you know, it's it's one of the reasons why perhaps many are upset about Turkey's approach towards Afghanistan. In insisting on the airport, Turkey has exposed two most two very important concerns. The first is that Taliban are worried about the internal backlash if they allow any foreign presence. And that includes the presence of Turkish troops, because Erdogan is insisting that if he's going to look after the airport, Erdogan is saying, I have to send my troops. The Taliban are saying, send us technical staff to train us. 
Turkey is saying, no, I have to send my troops. And part of that, of course, is because Erdogan is pitching to Biden uh, and NATO on the other side that, you know, I can be your representative in Afghanistan. It doesn't all have to be doom and gloom. So Erdogan has exposed the Taliban fears about its internal dynamics. The second fear that Erdogan ha has exposed is the fear that instead of being recognized, Taliban might find themselves a pariah state and possibly even under sanctions and treated like Iran. So the so, and by that, I mean the Taliban willingness to allow Turkey to look after the airport, but under the, uh, a private company shows that the Taliban are willing to make those concessions at the risk of their own gains internally, at the risk of their own internal unity, because they so badly want the international recognition that China and Russia quite simply cannot give them, only the US uh, can give them. And that's why when we're looking at it from the China dynamic, this is it is from this angle that perhaps it makes sense. This idea that Biden says, okay, the military approach didn't work, the occupying approach didn't work. Why don't we approach it from the way that we do in the Middle East, which is that we recognize power. We recognize Haftar in Libya because he's strong. We recognize Sisi's coup because Sisi's strong. We recognize bin Salman in Saudi because he's strong. We recognize Mohammed bin Zayed because he's strong. We recognize the militias in Iran, in Iraq, uh, in Iraq, and now we're negotiating with Iran, who are their sponsors, because they're strong. Why are we lying to ourselves about this idea of human rights and democracy. Let's approach it from the same real politic, pragmatic approach that we've approached it before, which is that yes, the Taliban might have, we might have failed to get rid of the Taliban, but they still need us and we still have cards to play. And it may be, may well be in this, in that, yes, there's a shift towards China. And this would explain why perhaps Biden has withdrawn uh, from Afghanistan uh, in this manner. But my response does suggest that it's still up in the air. Is this a different Taliban to the Taliban we saw in the 1990s and early 2000s? The Taliban that are more ready to uh, show uh, a diplomatic uh, offensive, to be more conciliatory towards the Americans. The CIA director, William Burns, uh, was uh, in, uh, in Kabul meeting with uh, the political office of, of uh, the Taliban, and, and uh, the discussion was most probably about the, the airport, but... but you know, it doesn't preclude that other discussions were held uh, with the Taliban, right? And so do we see a more savvy uh, Taliban, but a Taliban that's more willing to, to work with the international community in exchange for what uh, has been mentioned there by, by Sami, uh, in exchange for international recognition and uh, the, the aid and, and the, the, the trade that comes with that? I think there's two ways of answering this. Uh, in, in one sense, you could say it is... It is different in the sense that they're, you know, more politically savvy or, you know, more aware of, uh, more sensitive to international, you know, uh, priorities, whether that's, you know, fighting terrorism or whether that's, you know, human rights, things like that. Um, in, in, in another sense, though, you have to remember, even in the 1990s, they were, you know, they were trying to get international recognition. They probably maybe didn't uh, place as much importance on it. Uh, but the fact that they were isolated was more because of, you know, the international community's, uh, you know, uh, opposition to them, whether that was because their opponents were uh, re recognized or just, you know, because of opposition to their policies. But um, so so this uh, this sort of this, uh, this uh, need for international recognition has always been there. And uh, uh, like Sami says, actually, it, 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 is, it is a chip that the United States uh, could exploit because uh, even now I don't think China and Russia can you know kind of be bequeath that sort of recognition in the same way that even a de declining America can. Um, 
but um the other thing i was saying was that uh in that, that there is definitely more political savvy by the taliban uh the, you know the, the, they have uh, they've made a lot of they've made a lot more uh they made a, uh, they put a lot more emphasis on diplomacy you know even with uh whether that's inside afghanistan with their former with their former opponents there or whether that's uh you know with countries like uh china or iran uh iran which used to be a you know very big enemy of the taliban but for the last at least for the last 5 years they've they've been working with them to some extent um i i, I think i think uh Pakistan like Sami I think mentioned but Pakistan played a role or I think it was you who mentioned it but Pakistan played a role in sort of helping bring the Taliban to the table um I I I think actually Pakistan's preference is that you know if is that the Taliban sort of stay uh or stay in or join the join the Chinese uh sort of you know sphere of influence um one of the reasons being obviously that the united states is still very close with india the the other reason being that obviously you know china is next door you can't you know you you can't make it go away basically uh in the way that you could perhaps with the united states so so there there is there is more of a diplomatic uh, you know uh, offensive by the taliban in the last few years um but at the moment uh, uh at the moment you know it's it's its success is still somewhat limited because uh the united states doesn't recognize them you know china russia even pakistan don't recognize them yet so it, it is sort of you know, like a, a case of you know people waiting to see what happens um and you know who, you know whoever takes the plunge first maybe that will start a process of different countries recognizing them but at the moment uh you know their their diplomacy it it's worked only up to a certain point um it, it, it they still have a long way to go in that respect in the remainder of the the time we have left i would like your thoughts the two of you on uh the the, the state of the muslim world uh as it as it stands i mean we we've seen we've had a tumultuous uh 10 years or so um 20 years but 10 years uh since the arab spring began and and we we now have a a muslim world which is firmly in the grip of the authoritarians um we can't even think of it's 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 impossible to cite an example now of of most of the arab countries all of the arab countries where uh there's uh, some form of representative government and you know this decline uh, you suggest sami uh, it's no coincidence but the americans have turned a blind eye to those authoritarians and those dictators now one version of of the biden presidency or one interpretation of the biden presidency was that he was going to take some of these authoritarians to task i mean for example his refusal to deal with mohammed bin salman and 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 to only speak to his father was a what was seen symbolically at least to be uh a uh, uh you know biden's uh Uh, aversion to human rights abuses and and his uh, requirement to reset uh, some of those relationships on a more ideological platform where where these countries are are uh, are adherent to some of the uh, the principles that America would like to uh, to, uh, uh, to 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 solidify in the world i mean to what extent has american policy changed 
with with the change of leadership towards these Muslim leaders? I think that's a that, that's a grand question. I, I I think that we have to put things into a wider context in order to. To, to look at where we are now, and I don't mean a history lesson, it's just a couple of sentences, which is that if you look about 80 years ago, the region was under official colonization. The French were officially in Algeria. The Italians were officially in Libya. The British were officially in uh, Egypt. You know, it was official colonization. That was the way that the world worked. And then the world worked. And then we had what I call unofficial colonization. A series of independence movements took place. The economies are dominated by colonial powers but they can no longer officially colonize these countries. There's been a shift, there's been a change. You can no longer go in and claim the territory for it, so for your own. You have to, you're forced by the geopolitical dynamics to put up some sort of pretense, either by supporting an autocrat or supporting an authoritarian. And that is a progress. And then you fast forward, of course, and then you have the Arab Spring, which takes place. You have people taken to the streets who are demanding freedom, demanding uh, uh, expression, demanding uh, the right to employment, the right to uh, uh, health care, all the basic rights that are integral uh, for any uh, human being. So, uh, And that's perhaps the greatest challenge to the authoritarian regimes, so much so that it undermined the U.S. ability or the U.S. relationship with these authoritarian regimes, so much so that Obama writes in his book that Mohammed bin Zayed says to him in 2011 that we can no longer trust the U.S. and we'll be looking for alternative partners because you're not bailing on us, because you're not backing us. So in other words, it's clear that if you look a bit wider, rather than a decline, I actually think that we're progressing and we're actually going forward for all of the woes and for all of the troubles that are taking place. America has now retreated from Afghanistan. We're now in a multipolar world. There's Russia, there's China and the like. If you're talking about the Muslim world specifically, the reality is that it's becoming abundantly clear that the current series of systems doesn't work and that the people will no longer tolerate it. And now we're entering a crossroads whereby the choice is do the authoritarians continue to rule by repression, oppression, and fighting insurgencies day and night uh, across the region and have no peace? Or do they decide to, or do we decide to move forward as an international community in order to try to find some way within which at least to give piecemeal initiatives to the people? And by that, I don't mean the international community gives it willingly. I mean by the way the dynamics change from official colonization to unofficial colonization to Arab Spring or the like. It's clear that as people push, the things are changing. Uh, but as you say, there's, there's still a long way to go, primarily because the reaction to the Arab Spring was one of hesitation on the part of the international community. This idea that when we tried to give them democracy, they voted for the wrong choice. Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, in an interview with Le Grand Continent in, 20, in November 2020, he says it quite bluntly. He says, what we noticed from the Arab Spring is that the people in the region voted for regression and backwardness. They voted, in other words, that their free democratic vote for Mohammed Morsi or for Al-Nahva or for Ali the Shabia or for these other Islamic leaning parties was a vote for regression. So you can see the attitudes in this round table that I mentioned earlier, there was an EU diplomat who, who, who remarked when, 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 when it was said to him, why didn't you support the democratic transition Egypt and prevent Sisi's coup? He said, Morsi came to Europe and sat and said, I am the majority. And somebody replied and said, well, well, he was the majority. Yes, but that's not how he should be acting. But that's how every leader in the Western world acts. He's the leader who won the democratic majority. He's entitled to rule for four years and then he's voted out or he's, he's voted in again. In other words, it's clear that we're entering this stage whereby after we kicked out colonization, after we threatened the colonial grip on the economies, 
after the international community was forced to give the people of the region the chance to freely vote for who they wanted, we're at a stage where the international community is sort of saying, do we want to live with this? And that's where I think the debate has moved on, this idea of, okay, this is the reality. 80 years of secular social engineering, whether it's by Bourguiba, whether it's by Ben Ali, whether it's by uh, you know the other leaders in the region forcefully trying to change the identities of the state, and it hasn't worked. Ben Ali found and all of a sudden, people are still voting for bearded men who say Allahu Akbar and hold the Quran. I remember in 2013, I was in Egypt during the presidential elections. I went to a countryside in Suhag and I asked somebody, who are you voting for? He said, I'm voting for Morsi. I said, but what is it about his political program that pleases you, you know, about his economic policies? He said, wallahi, I don't care about the political program. I said, what do you mean? How can you vote for somebody if you don't know his political program? They said, I want somebody who fears Allah. I said, but there should be more than he goes, no. If he fears Allah, Allah will make everything easy for him. This idea that the identity, the Islamic identity still plays such a powerful role in the political decision making and the political perceptions of the ordinary person in the region. And that's why I think rather than a decline, we're actually now towards a stage whereby we're getting towards a crossroads in which you have a new generation, second generation, third generation Muslims grew up in the West, understand the systems, understand how they work, looking at the Muslim world, how they believe it should be changed, how it can work, going back, taking the expertise, taking their talents. You look at Turkey, Erdogan as an example, even if he's not the ideal example, but Erdogan, this idea of establishing a Turkish agency that allows him to at least stand up in some cases to the Americans, to the Russians. You'll remember how uh, Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo and Gina Haspel, when Erdogan threatened to go into northern Syria, they flew out immediately. They scrambled to Ankara to meet Erdogan and tell him, okay, okay, what is it that you want? Something that perhaps we haven't seen in a long time uh, in terms of the region. So I think we are going towards agency. The world order is not the way that it was before. It's becoming increasingly multipolar. This doesn't mean that it's getting better, but it means that opportunities that weren't there before are now afforded to us. Opportunities that didn't exist before as a result of the tight chokehold that the authoritarian regimes had uh, on the region, these uh, chokeholds are now uh, not as strong as they used to be. So in terms, the, the reality is that the dynamics are changing, things are changing. It doesn't necessarily mean things are going to get better, but it does certainly mean that the debate is now moving to a stage of increasing frankness, of increasing discussions. And I think Afghanistan is actually a very good example of this in that today you have this sort of battle of narratives. You have a narrative which says that the Taliban are a terrorist organization, pro-Al-Qaeda, the backward people, etc. But you have an equally powerful narrative on the other side, which is that, listen, it was an illegal invasion. Taliban should be given a chance. They should be worked with, etc. And that's the age of social media. And that's why I often remark that, you know, a family member of mine often remarks that may Allah bless Mark Zuckerberg for bringing us Facebook and social media that allows us to bypass the mainstream media, allows us to bring out these narratives. And the last example I'll give on this point is the last uh, Israeli-Palestinian uh, uh, war. It, this idea that for the first time, Israel's grip on the narrative was broken by Palestinian activism on social media. For the first time, the word apartheid was used in Congress. For the first time, the suggestion of sanctions of Israel was posed in Congress. For the And this is the reality. This never used to happen before. This was unthinkable before. It's clear things are moving. It may not be the way that we want it. It may not be, we may not have arrived at their goal. It may be we go our whole lives and it doesn't turn out the way that we want to. But certainly, in my opinion, over the last 70 years, the trajectory is certainly very positive. 
in a very twisted way, if that makes sense. Ibrahim Moiz, Sami Hamdi, it's been a fascinating discussion. And as the, the sun declines here in, uh, in Istanbul, I think we, we can leave on an optimistic note, uh, inshallah ta'ala. And uh, I thank you for your contributions today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with Ibrahim as well. Thanks, thanks very much. It was, very, it was a very good discussion. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.